We continue through the Gospel of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 13, and we have gotten as far as verse 21, so we will commence reading at verse 22 tonight, and pick up in the narrative here. Luke 13, verse 22, we have, uh, I was thinking over this, you know, how Luke is aiming for a more Gentile audience, and a lot of aspects of discipleship the Jews would already be aware of and familiar with, but the target audience that Luke has in mind would be a people in paganism and in ignorance. And so you just keep coming across some of these very hard sayings from the Lord Jesus Christ about what it means to really be a child of God, what it means to follow the Lord, what it means to be sold out, what it means to really take up this message that He communicates. And so there are many difficult sayings, and tonight is is no different. He He brings challenging words again. So let us hear the word of the Lord. Luke 13, verse 22. He went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up, and hath shut to the door, and he begin to stand without, and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall he begin to say, We have eaten, and drunk in thy presence, and Thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last that shall be first and there are first that shall be last. Amen. We'll end the reading at verse 30 and receive this as the very word of God and receive it by faith into your hearts. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing as we consider it together tonight. Lord, we we pray for help. We thank Thee for what we've already enjoyed in singing Thy praises with Thy people. What a difference it is to be here under the sound of Thy Word, singing the praises of the people of God. Help us to count our blessings. Help us to enumerate them in thanksgiving. May we never be like the nine lepers, May we be like that one, returning to give appreciation where it is due, to thank the Lord from the bottom of our hearts for His great and mighty and sovereign and permanent deliverance of our lives and our souls. Be with us tonight. Hear prayers already offered for Thy presence, for Thy help, 
and speak, Lord. Feed thy sheep and thy lambs. Give the children, give them ears and hearts to hear and respond, and, and for everyone else also. And should there be those in unbelief, may that not be the case before they lay their heads upon a pillow this night. Save them, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. At the close of his gospel, John writes, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. John summarizes the at least what he felt was the reality, and we believe is and was the reality, that there's so many things could be written about the Lord Jesus Christ. Hundreds of lives were touched every day almost, and each one of them could have been given to us. And there could be constant stories and information detailing how Christ interacted, what they heard, and the change that was wrought in their lives. The setting of the passage before us this evening brings a similar idea, I think, into view. Christ, we're told in verse 22, He's going through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. That's what we're told. We're not told what happened every day. We're not told every sermon. We're not told all the people healed, all the lives transformed or in some way touched by Him. We don't know. None of those things are given to us. It just kind of skirts over this fact that he is, he is going to Jerusalem. He's going from city to city, from village to village, and you're just going to have to keep your curiosity to the side because we don't know all the things that were said and done. The Lord Jesus is making this journey, I've mentioned this before, journeying toward Jerusalem. This focus has been in view as far as we are concerned from the ninth chapter. Back in Luke chapter 9, you have the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. You have reference to it right there in verse 31, when it speaks of Him appearing in glory and speck of His decease, which He should accomplish at Jerusalem. So even in that discussion on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a pointing to Jerusalem. And then at the end of that chapter, verse 51, it came to pass when the time was come that He should be received up, He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. And it becomes obvious, if you read the context, obvious to everyone that this is the way he's going. He's heading toward Jerusalem. So they became aware. People around him became aware he's going to Jerusalem. And other details are given. He is, he's, he's laser-focused. I'm going to Jerusalem. And we know why. He's going to die. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to suffer at the hand of the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and so on. He's going to suffer on behalf of His people. But while hundreds of things could be addressed and told to us, accounted, the Holy Spirit gives to us just certain details of the life and times of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told of one memorable day in the remaining verses of this chapter. We're told of one who comes to inquire, brings in a question, and later on, from verse 31, the same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. So Luke draws our attention under inspiration. He draws our attention to one day where a couple of things happened. And these are memorable, these are notable, and these are useful 
for each of us. So I trust that they will be useful to us. And you look at the scene. Look at verse 23. Then one said unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And this is going to open up an opportunity for the Lord to deal with something. What we're going to learn is he doesn't He doesn't actually answer the question, at least not in the way that I think the uh, asker had in mind. And he begins in verse 24, strive to enter in. This word, as I was meditating upon it again, it uh, comes from a Greek word where we get our word agony from or agonize. And so it has a sense of, of labor, has a sense of work, toil, effort, hardship. And the Lord Jesus launches into what He has to put before them with this, this imagery of labor, of striving, of, striving of, of working hard or agonizing to obtain the objective that He puts before us. It is not a physical labor. It is a spiritual labor, largely. And it is calling us to effort. Effort. You know, sometimes in the Christian church we imagine given our understanding that Jesus Christ has done everything. He has laid down His life for us. He is that once for all sacrifice for sin. He is the sole mediator between God and man. He is the substitute for sinners. Therefore, once we receive Him, believe in Him, we get to sit back and just enjoy our journey into the presence of God. And there's not really anything for us to do. And there's an element of truth in that. We are our work to bring us before God. The the, the reason why we get to stand before God is all Christ, 100%. You can't add to it. You can't contribute anything where God looks at your work and says, oh, that was missing, that's a helpful piece, that's going to help you in your entry into heaven. It's all the work of Jesus Christ. But when it comes even to our salvation, sometimes we also think that our coming into that experience of resting in Christ and knowing Him is, is also something where we, we sit back. We don't really do anything. We, we, we wait. We wait and see whether or not God will, will save me. I sit back and maybe, maybe not, He will speak to my heart, flash a bolt of lightning across my path, or in some other way make me aware that now is the time to seek the Lord. Well, we're going to learn, I think, tonight that that is far from what Jesus Christ puts before us here. We're not told about the man who asked the question. Those details are left to the side. We're not even told the motive. Is is he coming at it from a positive perspective? frame? Is he coming at it from a negative frame? Was he asking like a typical Jew who believed that all but the the worst of Jews would be saved? And he's maybe feeling the sharp distinction that Christ is making in his preaching, where he is preaching what we may say in a discriminatory fashion. Christ's preaching, I'm not going to take time to go back, but read the preceding few chapters here, you will see it's very discriminatory. Not everybody gets in. Not everybody is embraced. Not everyone is the Lord's. And that's been very clear. So so maybe he's coming at it from a Jew who thinks the vast majority, except the real worst of us, are are saved. So 
So it comes at it with, from that position that we don't really agree with what you're saying and let me see what you have, what, what view you have of, of how many will be saved. Is it the traditional view or is it not? The other view is may, maybe, he is maybe he's wondering as he observes all that's going on and it's more po- positive, possibly. I can't say for sure. But follow me for a moment. Imagine that he is following the Lord Jesus and seeing his teaching and hearing what he is saying, and he gets it, like he's getting what he's saying. He also gets that he's making his way to Jerusalem. And he's already grasped and comprehended the fact he's going there to die. But as he watches the masses, the crowds that gather, there seems to be very little meaningful response to his message. And he's brought them to ask the question, how many are saved? Because you're going to do all this work, and what I, what I, I'm, here, I'm hearing you, you're going to Jerusalem, you're going to die, you're going to lay down your life, and there doesn't seem to be much, it's like no one seems to get it. Is this a waste of time? Is this a waste of time? Why, why are you doing it? What's going to be the end product? Is it worth it, Lord? How many will be saved at the end? I don't know. I'm not sure. As I say, these things are hidden from us. We don't know the motive precisely. But our Lord uses it. He uses it. He does not miss an opportunity. Oh, that we were more like the Lord. In terms of there's this one little opportunity to get a word in for the Lord Jesus, to bring some meaningful message to our generation and seize upon it. I often were so dull and we walk away and say, and say to ourselves, <laughs> that was just an opening. What was I thinking? Or rather, why was I not thinking? How come I didn't make a move in to clarify or open up the opportunity there? Uh, take seize upon it. But our Lord, He did not miss. No, He didn't, unless for good reason. And there are one or two occasions where we see that deliberately. He remains silent, but not here. So tonight, we are considering what I've entitled the gate of conversion. The gate of conversion. And two very simple main points here. And we begin with the symbol of it. The symbol of it. We're told in verse 24, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. The purpose of our Lord is to get us to move into action. We'll see that more in just a moment. But he, just, he describes this labor, this striving, this agony is to be applied towards entering in at the straight gate. Now, we don't talk about straight gates like this very much. In fact, this word is pretty much you never hear it used, really. I mean, we talk about the Strait of Gibraltar, which is the the narrowing area between the Atlantic and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so, So you still see it. It's not like it's never used, but it's an old term that just means narrow. There's this narrow gate and so the image, then, is, is, is this, this narrow way. Now, some have suggested that there's maybe a likening here to a kind of gate that would uh, help divide animals, for example. So the larger ones are kept out, the, the smaller ones are able to make their way through, and eventually they do, and that is an easy way, a non-laborious way of, of them dividing one another. Maybe that's the case, I, I don't know. But whatever the case, the point is that there is this narrow gate. And Jesus says you have to labor to enter in to this 
narrow gate. You have to labor. Now, I don't want you to miss that. There is a narrow gate. And he says labor to get in. Looking further, we see it's a sifting gate because in verse 25, when once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. We'll look at this in some details a little later, but for now you see that there is there is, it appears, at the other side of the gate, using the symbolism, at the other side of the gate, there is a community, a house. There's the master of the house, and some are over there with the master, and some want to get over there where the master is, but they are unable to get there. The gate, then, discriminates. Now, the language of this may be familiar to many of you that know about the Sermon on the Mount. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 7, uh, you'll, you'll see that familiar portion uses similar language. It's near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And again, the Lord Jesus in this sermon, He is driving at, you know, the heart of the issue, right? You know, it's the kind of brass tacks that there is a kingdom, there is a community, and those who are part of it, this is how they live. This is what is expected of them. And here are the Beatitudes, what they experience is, is this is the spirit of them, the humility of them, and their dependence on God, and so on. All these, these details given in the Sermon on the Mount are, are, are they, they, it's, you, you can't read it. You, can't, you don't get to read it and just put yourself in there for the benefits. It has, again, using the language I've already used, this discriminatory aspect. It isn't for everyone. And that sharpens as you get near to the end of the message. That's what preachers do. As they, they, they put the truth before, and as they come to the end, they, they tend to sort of hone in. They start to sharpen. If, if you've kind of been drifting, wondering, does this apply to me through the middle of it? A good preacher, by the time you're kind of moving toward the end, you're like, he's talking to me. <laughs> he's addressing me. At least that's what the goal is. That's the hope. You hope that you're going away thinking, did someone tell him about my life? Or, you know, how does he know? Or that was exactly what I needed to hear. Or, or I don't like what he's saying. You know, some kind of, you know, you're not, you're not just dull to it. You know the Lord is addressing you. And that's what preachers endeavor to do. And the Lord does the same. So, Matthew seven thirteen, Enter ye in, you don't have the same language in terms of strive, but enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So our Lord liked this imagery. He liked using it. And He put it before people possibly far more frequently than we are aware and he's saying, you, you, you make sure, you make sure you've entered in. There is this gate, and it's, it's, it's really the gate, it's a gate of conversion. If you get in there, you, you begin, you're, you're no longer at the gate, now you're on the way. It may, may be illustrative of the Christian life, the, the way, the path, the pilgrim journey. 
which leads then into the full consummated experience of eternal life. That's at the end, but it begins at the gate. And our Lord Jesus is, is looking at the crowds and repeatedly endeavoring to make sure that men and women are aware there's a gate. You, you better make sure you have gotten in. Not everyone gets in. You go back to Luke 13, you see that, just to emphasize it. The master of the house. There's the master of the house. And he shuts the door. And he shuts the door before everyone gets in. So there is this sifting influence of this gate. It doesn't allow everyone in because some of them, some of them were at the door, but they never entered in. That's actually part of their appeal. They go on to say, verse 26, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence. I mean, we were right there. We're not talking about pagans in a far-flung corner of the globe that have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. That's not who is in view. These people have been right at the gate, but they never got through it. Why? Why? Well, they, they, they would not go through the gate. There was something about the narrowness of that gate that made it difficult. It's not like they didn't want the life at the other side. They did. I think we can make that assumption. They want the life at the other side. They certainly want it come the time. But there's something about the narrowness of the gate that they kind of, they, they'd stop there. They can't quite get through. This is not an uncommon experience. When Jesus came on to his own and his own received him not, it was not for want of evidence or proof. They were brought by his coming into the world and his ministry before them. They were brought right to the gate. But they received him not. They wouldn't press in. The gate is narrow because it forces us to be stripped of certain things. The Lord doesn't want you coming in that way with certain baggage. We can think of it in two primary ways. The baggage of the pride of self. If you have a baggage of pride of self, let's say manifested specifically in self-righteousness, where you think that there's something you can do to save yourself, you're wearing that. I want you to visualize you wearing that like a bag. Here is the baggage of my good works. A whole hiking backpack, a big sack over your shoulder. Look, Lord. Look at my good works. And you keep stuffing new things. You think. Every day, into this big sack, into this big bag, you, you put all these things in. You're saying, look, Lord, look what I'm doing. And he's saying, here's life, here's life. You have to go through the gate, and you're coming with your bag, and you're trying to get into the gate. But you can't, you can't get in with the bag. You can't fit. You're not getting there. That's the kind of imagery. 
And many before the Lord Jesus were exactly like that. They were brought right to the gate. They had the big bag of their religiosity, of their, their, their so-called obedience and whatever, self-righteousness in various forms. And there they have it right on their shoulder. And they won't let go. They're right at the gate, but they won't let go. Oh, how many, how many perish hanging on to their good works, standing right at the gate, and they don't get in. I hope, I mean, the emphasis, I trust is sufficient here regularly that there's no one living in an illusion thinking that, you know, pastor would be impressed with me. I'm being really good these days, and, you know, uh, surely I'll be all right in the end. <laughs> Not if you're thinking like that. I want you to say, if I have Jesus, Jesus only. Yes, if I have Him. That's, that's enough. There are also other things, like, like pet sins. Not just the pride of self, but the, the bag of pet sins. Now, here we're, here's where we have to be careful, because the Lord Jesus has come to deal with our sins, hasn't He? He's come to deal with our sins. And, and nowhere does he, he present, uh, well, you've done this, so there's no hope for you. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin, and you go through the Scriptures and you see the ugliest people are saved by God's sovereign grace. Right? You, you, you read the life of someone like Manasseh, and, and you, you're stunned. He has two accounts. One of them, you read it, and you go, that man's lost. <laughs> no hope for him. I think it's in Kings. And then you go to Chronicles, and you see this, this, this. He cries to the Lord, and the Lord hears his cry. He's saying, wow. Wow. Manasseh. Most of the judgment that came upon Judah was because of a Manasseh and what he brought into the nation. Manasseh had to be brought to a point and through great hardship, when thinking of him specifically, he suffered under the hands of the Assyrians most awfully, especially when you start reading historically how the Assyrians treated their, those that they conquered. It's not, not very pleasant, especially the king, you know, because you, you want to make an, an exhibition right there. So there's been some stuff I've read about them. We take the king once they've conquered the city, they take the king, they put a hook up through his jaw and lead him out like a wild beast through the city. They've taken your king. He's like a beast. We have him under control. And suppresses any sense of hope of deliverance among the people. But this man cries. He, he, he loses his baggage of his pet sins. He, he tosses it all aside. And it's the same for you. You have, to, you have to lose the pet sins. You don't get to come in with the pet sins. Christ died for the ungodly and the vilest sinner who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. We do not deny that. But that vilest sinner, that Manasseh, that Saul of Tarsus, they have done, yes, with their self-righteousness, Yes, also with their pet sins. You don't get to come to the gate with the, with the little exception clause and negotiate with the Lord of glory. Lord, I, 
I want to be saved. Just, just let me have this. This. And you, you, try, you try to get it in. It's like you're trying to hide it, you know. But the bulge, the bulge is there. And you're not getting in. That gate is so... It's, it's you. That's it. It's you seizing upon Christ. That's it. You don't get to bring anything else. And some of you, God forbid, but you would not be the first, you will not be the last. You perish because you hold on to pet sins. You're right at the gate. You want life. You want to be saved. You want what Jesus Christ offers. You want it. The desire is there. And you're right at the gate. Mom and dad pray for you, read the Bible with you. They bring you right up to the gate. And they call you. Enter in. You come to church. The pastor preaches. Sit in Sunday school. The teacher instructs. They bring you right up to the gate. And they call you. Enter in. Enter in, friends. And you have this little... These pet sins, or maybe, maybe one particular pet sin. Like, like, the, like the rich young ruler. Right? How may I inherit eternal life? I, I, I want it. I want eternal life. Lord Jesus, you know, the gate, he's right there. He's right at the gate. How may I inherit? It's right there. It's right, right there, young man. You can, you can just enter into the gate. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> you can't bring that bag. That big bag is an idol of your gold. It's your wealth, and it's your idol. You worship it. You live for it. And you're going to prove that you can't live without it. And so Jesus is, is calling you. He, he invites you. He says, the gate is here. Come in. But you're holding on. And you have to go away sorrowful because you won't let go. With white knuckles, you hang on to your riches. You hang on to certain private sin, personal habits, things I know nothing about. But you know them. You, you know them. So often when I counsel people who are right, they're broken, they're at a point, they're wrestling. There's a part of them that's just, just edging right in to the kingdom. They're almost persuaded, but they're, they're, they're halting. You can see it, they're halting. I, I tell them there, there's one thing in your life. There's something. There is something. What is it? If you do not let go of that one thing, you will perish. The gate then has this sifting. The symbol of it is designed to show us there's a sifting influence. You, you aren't going to get in with whatever it is that is forbidden. Now, you're sinful, yes. You're, you're going to get in as a sinner. You'll still be a sinner. But you're not willfully holding on to something that is disobedient. You're not willfully saying, I'm having this habit. No matter what you say, no matter what your word declares, you let go. You let go. And yes, you come in and you may still struggle with that habit or 
with that thing, there may be a wrestling that you experience, but you're not like holding on to it. You're wanting rid of it. You want delivered from it. And that humble spirit, the Lord says, you come to the gate, you let go of it, come in, you can be saved. It's a straight gate, it's a sifting gate, and it is, to emphasize the point, it is a Greek gate that requires you to strive. I want to emphasize this. Strive to enter in. Hard work. You cannot get through the door with incompatible or competing loves. The gate brings you, it's not just a gate, it's, it's Christ. Okay? I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The gate is Christ. There's a, a coming to Him, and you don't get to come with competing ideologies, loves, affections, whatever. But he is, he, is, he is saying, strive to enter in. Now, I want to stop just before we proceed and caution anyone who's thinking, sounds like the preacher is preaching salvation by works. Labor to enter in to Christ. Sounds like salvation by works. Now, if, if that, I'm only saying what Christ is saying, but if that's what Christ is saying, right, just to step back and say Christ is preaching work salvation here. If that's the case, why go to Jerusalem in the first place? He's going to Jerusalem to procure salvation, to lay down his life so that sinners can be and will be saved. So we can't misunderstand the language here. He's journeying to Jerusalem to lay down his life. That's the way of salvation. But, but he addresses here, as I put it in this language, Though the, the, the tendency of some to sit and wait for a flash from heaven or some other force to make them realize now is the time. My friend, now the present is always the time. The moment you're in is the mo only moment you're guaranteed of. And so he, he says, labor. Labor. Now, what does he mean, labor? How can we understand the strive to enter in at the straight gate? Obviously, you can, you can just sort of leave it there and say, do everything in your power to, to get into Christ. And we've already addressed certain things you have to let go of, pride and pet sins. But, but I want to take you a little further in, in some thoughts. If you're here and you're not converted, or... You don't know. You don't know. I want to give you some help because I think I can pull under the instruction of Christ in verse 24 some things that may be of help to you. When I hear Jesus say, strive to enter in at the straight gate, I hear a number of things. First, put yourself under the word. John 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So, if he's putting life before me, and there's a gate there, and I'm battling to get there, to, maybe there's certain, I'm not sure, or I don't know, or I'm holding on to this sin, or whatever. The answer for all of that is the Word. 
you need faith, and the Word is the instrument that God uses to produce faith in your heart. So you get yourself onto the Word different ways. You read your Bible. You say, preacher, I'm, I'm not religious. I'm not a member of the church. I don't claim to be a Christian. Why should I read the Bible? Because you should strive to enter in. Read the Bible. Of all people who should read the Bible, you should read the Bible. With all your doubts and your, your disbelief and your, your whatever it is that you're holding on to, you, you should be reading it. You should be devouring it. You should be searching it. You should be pouring yourself over it. Work for Martin Luther. Get yourself onto the Word. Don't be a... We talked about... Your college used to talk about smoles. <laughs> I didn't come up with it. It was just... One guy used to talk about smoles. Sunday morning only, Christians. They're, they're a smoke. <laughs> they go to church Sunday morning only. That's it. Uh, <laughs> well, if you're trying to... To get assurance, to get into Christ, you don't want to be a, a smo. You, you want to be under the word every opportunity. You say, you mean every opportunity? Yes, every opportunity. Sunday school, morning worship, evening worship, prayer meeting. I thought prayer meetings for Christians. You need to be under the word. Get yourself to everything. Put yourself under the means God has used, has promised to use, and will use. And praise God, many of us have known Him to use it in our lives. You might, you might go further. You, ha you have a phone, probably. Yeah? You have, I don't know, all sorts of apps. And I've said for years, you have a smart phone. And most people use their smartphones in dumb ways. And that's, that's not helpful. You can use it smartly. For example, you could download sermonaudio.com and you could listen to sermons. I, I think that's the kind of idea Jesus has in mind. Everything in your power, get under the Word. Get under the Word. Listen to it. Have the, have the audio Bible read to you as you go to work. Listen to sermons preached by reliable Bible teachers. Get in every service that you can attend. I mean, am I, am I misreading? The language of the Lord Jesus is, 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 is life and death. I mean, we're going to get to language where he, he stands over Jerusalem and he weeps. He's, he's longing. He is, he is, his heart is going out to a city that won't hear and who won't strive to enter in. And you don't want to be found in that camp. So you would, you would put yourself under the Word. Get more of the Bible into your life. Yes, yes, you have time for it. You do. You have time for it. You make time for what matters to you. Always. You make time for what matters to you. So does eternal life matter to you? Salvation, does it matter to you?
not only put yourself under the Word, make yourself hear the Word. Right? And I, and I say that based on what we've already looked at back in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, the parable of the sower. Take heed how ye hear. Now, some, you know, you're all here and you're able to hear. Right? So there's sound and there are words. And I hope, despite my accent, most of those words are understood and processed with comprehension. I, but there's more to it than that. There's, how am I hearing it? How am I hearing it? Jesus says, take heed how ye hear. You are to hear it attentively. That means you, you fight sleep. And you fight sleep not in the meeting. You fight sleep before the meeting. You, you get yourself rested. You get to bed. I, I mean... <laughs> if, you stay, if you stay up to... Two and three on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, you are already losing the battle. The devil's already halfway to a victory in your life. You're exhausted. Take heed how you hear. And attentiveness means that there's preparation so that you're not distracted, so that your mind's not drifting. Look, this preacher doesn't always have a good day, right? Sometimes we, 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 we talk about laboring in the Word. Well, there are different ways we can think about that. We labor in the Word in terms of we, we give the Word and we labor to bring the Word. Sometimes, but it's more of a labor, right? You're, you're trying to be clear. I talked to the family last Lord's Day afternoon, feeling in my heart. I mean, I mentioned it in the sermon. I mean, I fear that you're not with me. I made mention of it. Because I asked them, and they, you know, yeah, they, they were lost along the way. <laughs> so it happens sometimes. It happens. The preacher doesn't always have a good day. He battles for clarity and everything else. But, but it shouldn't... We, 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 sh- we should do better. But let me put some onus not just on me, on you. How are you hearing? How are you preparing so that you can hear it in the right way? Hear it attentively. Hear it personally. Hear it personally. So, when I quote Romans 3, 23, or whatever, and I say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, I want you to say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? There's me. I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Should the preacher miss in making that direct application, make sure you make it yourself. I have sinned. Or you quote John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life whosoever I can put my name right there so if James believes on the son he will have everlasting life listen to it personally hear it obediently attentively personally obediently you have to obey or what good is it If you disobey a red light repeatedly, eventually you're going to learn the consequences of that. A red light is only good insofar as people obey what it's communicating. It's time to stop. And the word is the same. It is only good insofar as you actually obey. Hearing it, 
knowing it, knowing that red means stop, doesn't save me when I carry on. It doesn't help. I have to obey it. You have to obey the Word of Christ. So put yourself under the Word. Make yourself hear the Word and the ways explained. And then remove all hindrances to the Word. Strive to enter in. So if you're striving to do something, but something's holding you back, I think that thing needs to go. No? Does that not fit again with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 29? If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So, remove all hindrances to the Word, to hearing and obeying the Word. If there's a relationship in your life that is holding you back from going through the gate, it needs to end. If there is any activity or anything and we start dealing with this kind of thing that comes to your mind, that the Spirit draws to your mind, that thing is hindering. It needs to go. Our Lord is serious, isn't He? Doesn't trifle with your soul doesn't play games with your eternity. These are sober words. As I say, he's, he's not really answering the question. The concern is not how many are saved, but by what means are men saved. That's all that matters. They need to get to the gate. And many, many have the gate put before them. Many come to see the gate, stand beside the gate, know all about the gate, and yet they don't get through the gate. So, so, so you're, you're, you're at the gate tonight, and I address specifically those of you not saved, or as I said earlier, you don't know, you're at the gate. What do you do? Strive to enter in. Do everything in your power to respond to the gospel as it is put before you. I already quoted John 10, verse 9. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. That's a good text, fitting with similar language. The metaphor there is, is clear. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. You don't have to hesitate. You don't have to stand by. If you wait until you're ready, you may never be more ready. In fact, let me rephrase it. You, you cannot be more ready than now. You can't. 
I say that because how do you make sure you're ready for a future you don't know you'll be in? Making plans to do something in the future is only a one part of the puzzle. Planning to respond the right way in the future is only one piece. There's another huge chunk. You have to be in that future. And none of us know what a day may bring forth. You cannot be more ready then than you are now. If you wait until it's popular, it, <laughs> it may never be more popular than now to respond to Christ. It may be becoming more and more unpopular, and that seems to be the trend around here these days. Waiting until it's acceptable. Maybe it'll be more acceptable in the future, more acceptable with family, with my boss, with other sets of circumstances. No, it may not. Now may be the most acceptable time for you to repent and believe the gospel. So, we've considered the symbol of it. We have one other point, the solemnity of it. I'll be quick with this, but it's, it's the solemn. I, I, I <laughs> we, 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 no one kind of wants to deal with these themes, you know. I, I, I wonder what you're thinking. Like, you know, maybe he could skip, look, kind of skip those, those passages. No, 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 we can't do that. We can't do that. The solemnity of it. First, as we consider the solemnity, there's an unexpected disappointment. Look at it, verse 24. They want to enter right now. At a certain point, he tells them, strive to enter in at the straight gate. Do it now. That's the implication. For many, I say unto you, will. That's what they're doing. They're procrastinating. The way to hell is paved with good intentions. It's right here. They will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Shall not be able. Get those four words into your mind. They shall not be able. That's not what they were expecting. Verse 25 and verse 27, you have the response of our Lord where He says, I know you not, and so on and so forth. I know you not. So they weren't expecting that because they begin to explain. Verse 26, then shall you begin to say, we have eaten and drunk and I pray. Trying to explain it all. <laughs> I know you not. And verse 28 they will be thrust out. Look at the verse, end of verse 28. They'll be thrust out. That's not what they were expecting. Oh, look at that language. How awful. Not able. I know you're not. Thrust out. They had been in the presence of Christ's teaching. They sat under it, but... This is, this is what comes to them. And we don't like, we really don't like unexpected disappointments, right? Sometimes you can prepare yourself for a disappointment. I didn't do well in that exam. I know it. <laughs> I just know I did not do well. You kind of prepare yourself and then it get, you get the results and you realize, yep, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that wasn't good. But you were kind of prepared for it. 
But when your disappointment's completely unexpected, you're planning a trip. For months you're planning it. And you're looking forward to some, I don't know, ski trip up in Colorado, maybe going to the Rockies in Canada. And you plan it for months and all your friends and you've taken off one week off work and it's hard for you to get time. So you've had to plan months in advance just to get that particular week and you make the plans and all. You get the gear and you're ready and you drive to the airport and they tell you, sorry, there's a storm. And the storm's coming in. It's going to be here for three days. There will be no flights out of here. We anticipate for at least three days. How do you feel? <laughs> You're not happy. You're not happy. All the plan, and you can't change anything. You're stuck. You can't push it back a week. You can't make those changes. You don't have that flexibility. You have to suck it up. A disappointment that grieves your heart. And yet, I tell you, there will be no disappointment like this one. People who stood at the gate, they, they Part of them wanted to be in, part of them expected to be in, and there are all sorts of different aspects, but they're right there, and they expect that they should be there, and they're not. Oh, oh, the horror of it. They will not be there. There's also an uncertain deadline. Look at verse 25. And once the master of the house has risen up, see there's a sovereign here and it's not you. There's someone in control and it's not you. The master of the house has risen up and hath shut to the door. He shuts the door. And you hear that clunk. And you, you begin to appeal. You begin to stand without and to knock at the door. Lord! Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not when she are. See, the deadline's not in your hands. That's why strive to enter in now. You don't know when that door shuts. Do you know when you're going to die? Do you know when you're not going to feel an interest to be saved? People lose interest. They do. You're, you're feeling interested. You're not, you feel, I, I'm not, I feel I'm not quite ready, but, but you're interested. That can pass. And the door shuts right in front of you. And then your interest. You want to get in, but you can't. And there's an unchangeable division. An unexpected disappointment, uncertain deadline, unchangeable division. Verse 28, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there the patriarchs and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, signifying all those redeemed by precious blood, believing to the salvation of their souls. 
They're all there. And you thrust out division. And there's no changing it. We will, in God's good time, get to Luke chapter 16. And the rich man and Lazarus. And the Lord says, there's a great gulf fixed. You can't cross it. There's no getting from there to here. You can't do it. And it is emphasized here as well. The gathering, all the gathering of all the people of God. And the response to it, the response when you see, you see it's like this, this imagery Jesus paints of all those we know were enveloped in the eternal love of God. And we see them there. We say, you know, because we don't recognize everybody, but we'll maybe recognize these ones and we'll know. No, that we know that's that's heaven right there. That's 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 where the people of God must be. That's where those who are the children of Abraham. That's where they are. And you're longing to be there. And you're shut out. You're told, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And just just note that. <laughs> when Jesus says in verse twenty seven, I know you not whence you are, he's not saying I don't know anything about you. He's not saying, I've never met you, I have no idea. Who are you? Maybe, I, need, maybe I, ch- I, have to, I have to go and check my records to find out what kind of a person you are. That's not what he means when he says, I don't know. He knows. Because you're a worker of iniquity, and he knows that. What he's saying when he says, I don't know you, is I don't know you savingly. You haven't come into union with me. You, don't, you have not trusted in me savingly. You've not repented of your sins. And so you see them, you see them there, you see the family of God. And there are two responses. Look at them. Weeping. Weeping. Oh, what weeping. Weeping of those damned forever. Can't even begin to envisage what that's like. The horror of that sound. Weeping and knowing that there's... is total despair. No hope. And then there are others. They're gnashing in their teeth. They're blaspheming God. They're angry. Instead of the sorrow of lost opportunities, the sorrow of the folly of their ways and their unbelief, they're angry. How dare he? So they express it and blasphemy against God. And so you're thrust out. And instead, verse 29, they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. You were right there at the gate. You were right there. And all these people, they get gathered in as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and they sit down in the kingdom of God. And there'll be a treatment there that may surprise us in some way. Those that are last, that shall be first and First, which shall be last. But here's the point. You're not there. If you're unsaved, you're not there. Why, why procrastinate? Why hesitate? Why? Come. Come. If you do nothing else this week, enter in. If you had to take the entire week off of school and off work 
and off, you, you couldn't do any of your responsibilities, but you, you entered in by the end of the week. It would be a good week. It would. I remember one girl, she came to the church one time up in Calgary. I didn't know her. She came on Sunday night. She sat there. And afterwards, she said, can I talk to you? I said, of course. And she, she began to explain that God has been working in my life. I, I, started, I started listening to your sermons. And Thursday this past week, I couldn't even, I had to, I couldn't get to work. I, I, I didn't go into work. I stayed off work on Thursday and Friday, and I just listened to sermons all day Thursday, all day Friday, I listened to sermons. I, she said, almost the end of every one of them, you said, you said, if you need any help, talk to me. And I said to myself, I can't do that. <laughs> I need to come in person. And so she came in person. And oh, sought the Lord right there for his mercy, for his salvation. Strive to enter in. Enter in. May the Lord help you. Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed before the Lord, you are before the Lord. You may enter in by the authority of God's Word. I extend to you the invitation of Christ. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Have you entered in? Are you crying out? Do you want it? You can have it. And if I can be of any help to you, please see me after the service. Father, we pray, bless thy word. We ask for grace to rightly receive it. And for any here tonight that are continuing to halt, to hesitate. Oh God, bring them right through. Save their precious souls. We beg of Thee. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank Thee for Thy love for sinners and Thy heart to appeal to them with fervency and zeal. Oh, we have done a weak job in communicating that heart, no doubt. But may Thy words be heard. May Thy voice be responded to by sinners tonight. So bless and save, we pray, and bless the fellowship and the food downstairs, and go with us to your homes, and keep us in thy fear and in thy love this week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.